you are a Bible scholar, a Bible expert. This is what my career has become, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's kind of weird. So I've kind of got two questions for you. One is, how did you get interested in studying the Bible? And two, do you enjoy reading the Bible now? So I started, I mean, in some ways, you know, my story about how I became a a biblical scholar, like as an academic and and so on. I mean, well, even right away, you say studying the Bible. I mean, there are different kinds of studying the Bible, right? right? Like as a person of faith, as a Christian, I started studying the Bible when I was, became a serious Christian, like when I was in college. Um, And then there's a kind of studying, which is like a kind of reading and you know, knowing some things, even even before I knew that biblical scholarship was even a thing, I think I was not really aware that it was. I started. I started by, I, and I remember this very distinctly. I remember reading the Book of Mark. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. um, Mark is one of the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, the four stories, the so-called Gospels. And at the end of Mark, there's this thing about Jesus rises from the dead, and he goes to his disciples and he says, "You can like pick up snakes and drink poison right. and yeah. all this stuff." Famous Pentecostal passage. You'll be fine, and da 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 da, and this is what'll happen. And I remember reading that, and 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 I, I went to a charismatic church at that time, which you know loved that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But there was a little footnote in my Bible. There was uh, a footnote in oh. the Bible. Why would there be a footnote in the Bible? They did they have footnotes then? No, they did not. Well, maybe they did in some kind of ways that were equivalent to ours. But, um, and the footnote said, "This portion not in da 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 manuscripts." And I was like, "What?" This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm an author, professor, historian, and I have a reoccurring dream wherein I am a My Little Pony. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and I've had the Jurassic Park theme song stuck in my head for around 25 years. (laughs) Well, today we're talking about the Bible. We watch a documentary all about the evangelical subculture of Bible quizzing, the suspense, the drama, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. We also talk about how different communities interpret the Bible, what sort of authority it has in our society, and whether or not Veggie Tales counts as biblical study. We interview Dr. Eve Lavabi Feinstein, author of Sexual Pollution in the Hebrew Bible and contributor to the Torah.com about her experience reading and interpreting the Bible in Jewish communities and how the plague of frogs in the Bible's Exodus story could really just be one huge monster frog. Oh man, I hope it is. <laughs> in the Kitsch Corner, we challenge each other to find some odd version of physical Bible kitsch from children's Bible. Bibles to awkward teen Bible zines. I was once a teenager. I still am in my heart. Join us. Join us. Was that the moment? What does that mean? Yeah. And I, and I, uh, it might have been, it might have been the moment. Uh, I, I don't know that I knew it was the moment at the time. Yeah. But it might have been. So I think it got me embroiled with, you know, some older people of faith and and some people like I knew somebody like a pastor at the church who had, um, you know, gone to seminary and had some of this training. And so he like explained that to me. And then I think it led to other like kind of like theological questions. And I think I was into like some very strange questions, which he sort of was like looking at me with a furrowed brow. Like I remember one of the earliest sort of exchanges I got into about this was kind of like, yeah, but okay. So in the biblical story, the devil... Satan is said to, you know, do these things and he'll fall. If you're the devil though, wouldn't your strategy be to just like read the Bible, know what at least it says you're supposed to do and then not do it? Because wouldn't that be the ultimate? You could prove you at least, even if you're going to get tossed into the abyss, you could at least prove that the Bible isn't true by you could just surrender and not do the things that the text says that you're going to do. Right? Right. What do you think about that? What's the answer? Is that a good tactic for the devil? 
Oh, and so what did this person say when you? I think he just looked at me like, "What's wrong with you?" Like, <laughs> I mean, he was nice about it, but like, you know, you know, yeah. I think he, I, you know, he gave me some kind of answer, but it was things like that. I think in my mind that like, just kind of kept mind, rolling around. That just kept rolling around. So it was, it wasn't just the Bible, but it was also like just questions that went then beyond the text too into these other areas. And then when I discovered that it was like. See, this is my pitch for studying the Bible academically, why it's awesome, because it's kind of like an everything discipline. It's like history, archaeology, languages, it's theology, it's li- it's literature, it's literary studies, it's philosophy. It's like it's like ever you could do everything with this book. It's like the book. You know, or as as I heard a secular Jewish scholar say at an academic conference, and he was talking about the way that universities are cutting religious studies programs yes. and things. He was saying, "Look, here's what we've got people who study the Bible. We have the best book." Period. <laughs> we have the everything book. Like we've got the book, you know? And so I think for people who like to read, you know, even people who aren't spiritually compelled by the Bible's vision, it's like, I mean, just think of this. If you, if someone told you like, yeah, I just wrote a book and you're like, yeah, what's in your book? You're like, yeah, it's about a being who creates the world and then gets involved with this particular family and they become a nation and he gets involved with them with this deal, but then they break the deal and then he gets angry and like wipes them off the face of the earth, but then they make a comeback and then they kind of don't. And then there's this guy who comes up who's like this long foretold figure who lives and does these teachings and then they kill him and then he rises from the dead and then he goes away again and then he promises he's going to come back with a vengeance at the end of time, you'd be like, whoa, like that's a serious story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the Bible is. That's the summary of the Bible story. It's crazy. And so I think it's, it's just, so I got into it that way. I mean, just by little by little. And, and I think it was just taking classes, having awesome professors, you know, who just taught really well. And it just made me, I was like, oh, there's this whole other world here. I'm doing this, you know? And I just, I think at my heart, I just love to know things. I just always want to know. My wife actually just complained the other day. She said, why are you always coming into a room and like asking 20 questions about what's going on? I didn't know that I did that. Apparently I do that. She doesn't like that. But that's that's the way I am. Like I'm coming in I'm like, what's that? What are we doing? Who are you? What's happening? What's this? And oh, and so the Bible is like a never ending fount for you. Yeah, I of, think you can do that forever. You can do that forever. You can do that forever yeah. with the Bible. And, and that's maybe, great. maybe that would seem to cheapen it in a spiritual sense. I don't know. Is it hard to read the Bible? It depends. It depends. Like I, I have I have multi multi answers to that question. Um one thing people do say to me sometimes, like, you know, how about listening to preaching? Like when you listen to someone preaching, like usually Christian ministers preach from the Bible, they're, they're interpreting a Bible story. Do I have a hard time listening to that? No, not really. I, I, I tend to be very sympathetic yeah. about, oh, about that too. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not critical of preachers. That's one thing that I'm not. I'm a critical person. I have all kinds of problems, which I'm not going to talk about on the podcast, but I don't. <laughs> I'm not critical of preachers typically. It would have to be like racist or or horrible or sexist or something really bad for me to be critical. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm typically yeah. not critical. But is it hard to read? Yeah, sometimes it is hard to read. I guess I've just like read so many things so many different times and then like you get the original language thing in there and then you teach it and it's almost like when it becomes your work, yeah, can you just like sit? It's like if you're a massage therapist, you just kind of like come home and like give your spouse a massage or are you like get me away from this, you know? And I think it's... It's tough. In some ways, this is what I've had to do. And I know this can probably sound like strange to people. I've had to sort of like for the, it sounds grandiose, but like for the benefit of my students and people I work with on on that front, I've like taken my reading and made it part of other people's experience too. 
in the classroom and in teaching and in writing. And so I've kind of transferred it. And I, you know, there's probably some element of Christian piety that says, yeah, but shouldn't you have like your own personal relationship with the book? And it's like, well, yeah, I do. It just, you know, it's changed. It's, it's, it's gone in different places. And so a lot of my reading of the Bible is with other people. Well, I do think that that is a, a very modern, um, I, I think you're right that people do have that idea that you should have a personal relationship with the Bible. Yeah. But that is a very late modern totally. idea because totally. for most of the time, well, for most of Christian history, Christians could most Christians couldn't read. Can't period. read the Bible if you can't read. Yeah. That's so, you, you can hear it. Someone could read it to you. Yeah. Which is it by in its nature a corporate act at that point, right? right Where right. you're like listening to it. and and that and for most of Christian history a lot of Bible reading happened in a liturgical setting. So like you're worshiping with other people. So yeah, the idea that you would have like an intense personal relationship, I think that's, it's, that is fascinating. In fact, it reminds me of a certain Twitter scandal that recently occurred. We love a good Twitter scandal. We do over here. Um, So uh, Desiring God Ministries, uh, did you hear about this? um, Tell me more. I probably have, but I'm not Desiring God um, Ministries uh, posted a, they have like a blog, uh, desiringgod.org. DesiringGod.org. Um, is this John Piper? Is this his Desire- group? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, John he's Piper. So pro- John prominent Piper, minister in Minnesota, I think he's based out of. Um, I don't. I forget where he's based out of, but um, he's based he, out of somewhere. He is a, a traditional reformed, uh, kind of leans on the fundy side of reformed mm-hmm. uh, pastor, and has been kind of the guy in the neo reform movement. Really into, right, right. Um, kind of did a lot to revive uh, Jonathan Edwards as a reformed preacher, and mm-hmm. uh, very into like kind of highly masculinized forms of Christianity. And mm-hmm. so anyway, um, made he he is a firebrand who makes all sorts of controversial Mm -hmm. claims like one of them was um Mm -hmm. that christianity had a masculine feel which you know and then all this the scholars of the mystics were like what a masculine feel Uh uh-huh yeah like the like the religion itself yeah yeah you know because jesus does he mean like illegitimately he he doesn't mean just like illegitimately culturally like we've made it he means like essentially essentially at its essential core yeah because um something that like his kind of brand of of the reform movement is really into gender essentialism and like the idea that like, that's even present within the person of God. I see. But anyhow, so he's he's famous for making like right there. I made a, a statement that could have derailed us for the entire podcast, and we just talk about that. You know, so, <laughs> why not? Why not? So a a blogger or an author, I don't know if it's a blogger or what, but yeah. um, he wrote an article. And one of the, like, here's a little quote that was tweeted out that said, read the Bible, memorize the Bible, speak the Bible, submit to the Bible, love the Bible, marry the Bible this year. Marry the Bible. Marry the Bible. Now, that caught people's attention because isn't the traditional role of the church to be the bride, not of the Bible, (laughs) But of Jesus Christ. Christ. Well, this is this. So this is a joke. Right? This is a joke. I tell my students in my biblical interpretation class, which is like, let's get one thing straight about the Bible. We're going to say all kinds of complicated things about it. We're going to see what other people have said about it. All kinds of complicated things. But let's get one thing clear. I think I'm on for firm ground on this. The Trinity for Christians is is God. Is is the <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, not, not the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Yeah. So I think, you know, that so, idea of having like a personal relationship with the Bible yeah, yeah. 
that the, this this desiring mm-hmm. God little Twitter scandal, right. which caused like havoc in certain evangelical circles, right, um, is the perfect example of that kind of mentality. That the idea that like the type of relationship that at least scriptures and church tradition talk about as being between Jesus and the church, right, in certain kind of more fundamentalist circles, ends up being between the church and the Bible. So right. it's like the Bible becomes a person. And as you say, like the, like a, a kind right. of fictional third person of, of the Trinity, which means like when you subject that God figure mm-hmm. to historical critical criticism or something like that, yeah, yeah. that's like traumatic, you know, in a way that you oh, never yeah. would to Jesus the man, you know? Right, exactly. Well, what growing up in the kind of household and faith tradition that you grew up in, what was your impression of what the, what was your impression of what the Bible was at its core? Like, what was it? What was it supposed to be? How were you supposed to relate to it? You know, it's weird. I had a, a strange relationship to the Bible now that I, like, as an adult reflecting back on back on it. Because I grew up in a tradition that was really mystical. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, it although I was raised around, like, a, a set of, of um, kind of traditional evangelical cultural norms— mm-hmm. Somehow the the type of biblical interpretation, the kind of marry the Bible approach, mm-hmm. passed me by because and now that I'm a historian of of the movement that I grew up in, I realize, oh, it's because in in the movement's roots, there was this really strong mystical impulse. Mm-hmm. So it was like, uh, for example, the mystics tended to have a, a symbolic read of the scriptures mm-hmm. instead of like a, a ultra literal scientific read, in part because, those types of readings didn't exist in the in the um, med- medieval era, so like uh, the version of of um, American Pentecostalism that I grew up in tended more toward that kind of like um, symbolic read. So right, heavy sure. on Jesus as the bridegroom, heavy right, on um, right. the church as the bride. So that being said, I was a, a big reader as a kid, and my parents, I, I just read the Bible because I thought it was interesting. All the things that you mentioned about the story, like yeah, the great yeah. stories, I love the Old Testament, so many cool, mm-hmm. interesting, weird stories. I remember reading about Tamar and Judah before I was old enough oh, to man. even understand what was going on in that oh, story. Man. <laughs> like, what does it mean, listener, spilling seed? If you I listen, don't know. Listener, if, you, if you've never read the Bible, a listener, but you like this podcast and you just want to pause, go pause this and go read Genesis 38. Tomorrow Genesis Judah. 38, is that the chapter? Judah. I don't even yeah. know. You know I, I better think, than I do. I, I think it is. Well, now I should check. See, I'm supposed to know this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, I'm, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's our, yeah, our it's, rated. it's Genesis 38. Okay, yeah. It's, and it's a short story that is self-contained. So Super you, interesting Well, story. okay, so you bring this up. This, What's so obviously, as you can tell, oh listener, we're talking about the Bible in this episode, the Bible. and in fact, we want to get around to a documentary we just watched. It's a few years old now, but it's called Bible Quiz. It was done in 2013. Fascinating. Um, Fascinating. When, you, when you talk about memorize the Bible, study the Bible, memorize. So, Bible, Bible Quiz yeah. is about memorize. So we got to get back to that at yes. some point. But but this could just go in so many weird directions, and we're probably almost already out of time here. Okay, yep. but anyway. <laughs> um, so here's one thing that's that's strange to talk about being a kid and like, you know, we got my my our oldest daughter, I think when she was five or six years old, we got her a, one of the a classic like children's picture Bible. Yeah. This happens to be a weird one though. I can't figure out who edited it, who wrote it, nothing. It's just like, it's it's contextless. It has Ooh, like no front matter. Fascinating. But it, it's like really well done. And it like tells like sort of condensed versions of stories, but then it has all this like archaeological information and these really? great pictures. It's really well done. I'd like to see it. It doesn't have any that. silly stuff in it. It's really good, but it was weird because we gave it to her and it probably had some stuff that was a little bit above her head. It was kind of censored in a way that children's yeah. Bibles are. You know, they're not going to give you Genesis 38, let's no. say. But yeah. 
it was weird because there was a while um, where I would, you know, our daughter, our oldest daughter is like a, a bookworm, just loves the reading. That's great. And she, she reads books before bed like her daddy does, just Aww, little, sitting so there reading sweet. books. And she would fall asleep with these books all over her. Yeah. And for a while, you know, I would do that thing. I still do it actually because I'm part of a generation of overprotective parents. I would go into the, you know, oh, their certainly. room and just like see if they're breathing and like, you know, like I, I do that. With totally. the first kid, you do that. The second yeah. kid, maybe it's like, I don't know. What, what could I, how could, well, how could I really, they're do, fine. what am I going to do about it? You've if, got you know, an air and a spare. Yeah, that's right. So, um, that's right. air and a spare. I've never heard that before. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that's I use a good that one. all the time. So I would go in there and, you know, I'd turn her little reading light off, but then I'd see that she'd been reading this Bible and like for every night, for many nights in a row, it's open to the crucifixion passage. Oh, interesting. And it's like just the scene and just thinking of her being up late at night, like looking at these three like almost nude men, like wow. being, being impaled. Wow. And just thinking like, yeah, it's weird because I guess as a Christian and a father and a biblical scholar, it's just, it's just... It, it has that sort of thing produces in me like so many conflicted feelings about just everything and just kids and the Bible and what to expose kids to and how and just so weird. But to just to see that and to think of her thinking about that as such a young child and then like, but this is a child's Bible and this is for her, but yet it's kind of not. And I don't know. And well, it's hard because the Bible is not, I mean, it's not a safe book. At all, like it, no. it's it's very violent. There's like the Bible will trigger you, like on every yeah, page. Yeah, yeah. So that is it's actually fascinating because now, so I, I'm the mother of a two year old, and people have given us a lot of like two year old Bibles, and many <laughs> of them are not as good as the one that you you yeah. have, mm-hmm. because many of them are just so overly sanitized that right. it's like this is unrecognizable. I don't even know what the story is about, like. You know, for example, the story of Jonah. That's a terrifying story when you think about it. And it yeah. kind of should be. Yes, you know? yes. So I, I was actually um, one of my professors, Kathleen Flake, who's a really um, amazing American religious historian. She taught this. One of my favorite classes in graduate school was called America's Bibles. Oh, and it nice. was basically like the history of the Bible in America. So we did mm-hmm. the Jeffersonian Bible, which mm-hmm. is like basically a spliced together Bible that mm-hmm. is like if – the only thing that goes into the Jeffersonian Bible made by Tof- Thomas Jefferson is literally cut and paste. Well, yeah, he cut out he cut out Everything all the miracles. He cut out all the miracles. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like basically the Bible conforming to Enlightenment deist values. But right, right. anyway, and then um, uh, there's like a, a he cut women's out the whole, Bible, he a cut feminist out, Bible. He cut out the whole Testament too, by the way. I think it was just the New Testament and just some sayings of Jesus. I mean, it's it's an edited version. Yeah, it's it's very small because yeah. turns out the Bible doesn't conform to a lot of turns out the Bible's not an <laughs> enlightenment, enlightenment ideal. Turns out it's not an enlightenment book. Yeah, for, there's um, uh, the woman's Bible put together by this woman named Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Americans have been really um, like uh, the Schofield Bible, which has a bunch of the cross. Yep. R- references that like added a bunch of cross re- references that we ta- we use today. Anyway, it was a great class. Sounds like a fantastic class. I loved it. It was so fun. I'll have to but, go back and take that class somehow. You should, we should both. <laughs> Let's go but take it. one of the things that was the most interesting thing about this is that she made this claim. And now that I'm a mom of a toddler, and I want to ask you now that yeah. you're a mom of a non-toddler, yeah, yeah. kids that are older than that, if this is true. And she said, kids don't need the Bible to be coherent. Like they... They don't need the same things that adults need from the Bible. So, like, you have to explain to a child that the Bible might not make sense chronologically or something. Because they'll just get swept into the world of the Bible and then— Yeah, yeah, you don't have to explain it because they'll just—they're in it. I mean, they know. To an adult, you might have to explain— 
Yeah. And say, oh yeah, you're reading like the book of Jeremiah. Like the book of Jeremiah is a crazy book. It's like, it seems like it was patched together from all kinds of scraps mm. of things. And the ancient versions of the book that we do have in the Greek tradition and in the Hebrew language tradition, as old as we have it, are different. Like the order of the books is different. One of them is like one sixth shorter than the other one. Like it's, and Jeremiah is an extreme example, but you'd have to explain that to an adult sophisticated reader. Cause you'd be reading it and you're like, I get what he's saying mostly, but this is a mess. Whereas yeah. a kid would just be like, yeah. Or in a mystical tradition, like you're saying, you would just read and be like, I mean, literal reading methods have been around always, but it's just a question like, do you stop there? You know, and the mystics yeah. would never stop with that. I mean, yeah, maybe they thought there was a literal Adam and an Eve, but they don't really care. Exactly. And that's not where the most meaning really is. And so, yeah, that's a great point about kids just rolling with it. You know? I think so. I mean, now like every parenting exercise is, is an experiment. So I'm experimenting on my children mm-hmm. and hopefully I'm doing okay. <laughs> what else is there? Is there a different way other right. than experiment? Like if this but, is an experiment, what's the real thing? I know. I don't know. Well, they'll tell their therapist someday. <laughs> but um, I was <laughs> thinking about like, I, I think I'm just going to let them experience you know, the Bible, because I don't know if there's any way that I can sanitize it without like with, I don't know if there's a way I can protect them without just like completely, um, like robbing them of the experience of it. Right. Well, and this complicated though. And and this is a huge thing. This reminds me of a famous anthropologist, Marcel Mauss, I think is his name. Uh Um, he had this famous anthropology of gift giving. Like he did all this anthropological work on, on traditional societies that use gift exchange as a way of social cohesion. Oh, interesting. And I think maybe this is anecdotal. I think this is true. This is put this in the category of things we've said on the podcast that is this really true? Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe it we'll is a fact finding. Um, but basically, so he, and he would do these studies in various like tribal groups, like people did, you know, in past centuries, always studying some primitive tribal group, you know, and to, to see, and they did gift exchange, which was very equal. Like I give you a thing, you give me a thing. This is how we know we're equals, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And the idea is that if people do gift exchange in a way and, and they just do it without really thinking about it, it's like, it almost function, it, it can function. But if you explain it to the group, if you oh. explain the dynamic, then it no longer functions. Because then they're like, oh, that's why we were doing it? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and it loses that oh, kind of like that magic. And I have wondered as I've taught throughout the years, like, is the Bible fundamentally a document like that? That's If you just explain it too much, if you just read it too much, if you just not read it too much, but if you read it in a certain way, like you mentioned the historical critical kind of methods. I mean, this has been the big problem for Bible readers, like you know, smart Bible readers, which is sure. when you start studying it in a certain way. Do Does it you, demystify? Do you demystify it um, of, of this? Um, this documentary, Bible Quiz, ha- is about this literal practice, which is, is fostered in some church traditions, of like memorizing huge swaths of the Bible. Yeah. And then competitively rehearsing it in response to cues and questions. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, pub quizzing plus evangelism plus discipleship plus culture wars. Everything all (laughs) All of it in one thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. one thing I will say, and I've actually been a coach for a Bible quiz team. Oh my gosh. I'm in the presence of a Bible quiz. In the same denomination that they were in in the film, this whole thing. I will say this one thing in favor of it that I think I've is just amazing, which is what happens to our memories these days? 
Yeah. Are we able oh, to do, do we memorize things? I can't even remember my wife's phone number. She switched phone numbers a little while ago. I can't remember oh, her number. I have to fill it out. That's hard when your spouse does that. I know. Why? Why do that? But you know, <laughs> so just memory. Like I'm worried about my memory, and you know, yeah, I've got all my notes, and I've got stuff on computers and whatever, and but you know. Um, what's inside of me? What's inside of my mind? What comes to my mind when I, when, when, in a moment of psychological, spiritual, you know, personal need? Uh, you know, what's really in the bank, as it were? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and what can I really and and what can I withdraw in that moment? And I think the idea of memorizing um, that 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 these kids are getting into, um, you know, in this film, it's really amazing. But there are other stories in the film too. I mean, we don't have too much time for them. Yeah. But what 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 were some compelling stories? So as they showed these kids, high schoolers. Yeah, doing it's this. the story of a ragtag group of Bible quizzers. A ragtag group. Can yeah. they make it? Can they make it? <laughs> and in some ways, it's basically a sports film. You it kind know? of is. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way, but it is actually, yeah. Like the under... Hoosiers. You know, yeah, it is. Oh, Every sports film is Hoosiers. Hoosiers is so yes. great. Yeah, but um, so, it, uh, yeah, there's this one uh, underdog character, this mm-hmm. woman, young woman named Michaela, who is like... Oh, maybe the most likable person you're going to yeah, see. Just on a sweetheart, like <laughs> A+. Plus. Film. Yeah, just a wonderful, seems like a wonderful young woman who um, was not did was not raised in the typical environment that you would imagine producing Bible quizzing right. people. And I think the vast majority of Bible quizzers come from stable, two-parent, middle-class, white, evangelical, conservative households Mm -hmm. and then they go compete against other children from the same kind of background but Michaela's not from that background and so because of that or maybe I, I I'm imagining because of that, she has such great questions and she has such a great perspective that's like outside of yeah, this she's, really insulated yes, little group. She's like a little, her, her observations and way of dealing are like, it's clearly like different from the other kids. Yeah. And she's just a Granted, joy. she's like the only female, one of the only females oh, yeah, that you see true. on this it's team. Guys. The rest of these are like, kind of like Bible quiz dude bros or like They're, dude broing it out. Yeah. You know, just. They're as cool as you would expect a a competitive Bible quizzing crew to be. And there's a personal element as Michaela seems more and more deeply to be developing something that looks more and more like a crush on JP. The team captain. The team captain. And then to follow where that goes, we we can't spoil it. I mean, the way that it ends too. Maybe this is one that we shouldn't spoil. Although it's been out for five years. This is on you. Although I can't imagine many of our listeners would actually have watched this documentary. No, but you should. It's a lot of fun. But it's so delicate and heartbreaking. it's like heartbreaking. It's like, yes, it is heartbreaking. Yeah, in the way that like youth is, you know, yes. like there's something about being yes. young. And so, yeah, I think that that so behind it all, like we were just talking about how should you study the Bible? Yeah, what yeah. is the Bible and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff behind all of that? Like all the uh, so the answer that Bible quizzing presumes is a very traditional, like 20th century scientific model for studying the Bible. Like how many times is such and such a word referenced in this sure, book? How many sure. times? And so on the one hand, you might think that that could take a little bit of the joy out of, like it, it at least to me, it might seem like mm. that takes some of the mystery and the fun sure. out of reading the Bible. But on the other hand, you have this very like incandescent youth 
like oh, being yeah. explored while they're trying to do this thing together. Yes. And it's very beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's so sweet. I mean, it's so moving. I mean, it's, oh, well, I, we have some dear friends who have a, have a, a child in Bible quiz right now that we know. And, and they, they, they were saying, they were saying just, just, just today. In fact, they said something like, yeah, he's really into it. I don't know. We're not really as into it as he is, but it's like, Hey, if he's interested in it, you know, something like then, that. Do you think, like, if your yeah. kid is like into something and memorizing huge parts of an ancient text, like you're, Who's cr- gonna say no you're to that? crushing it in life. If yeah, that's what totally. your kid is doing. Um, <laughs> totally. I guess, you know, as the psalmist, is it the Psalms? As, as the psalmist says, uh, uh, thy word have I hid in my heart that's that right. I might not sin against thee. <laughs> yeah. um, whether that word and that phrase really means the Bible or some other kind of God's acting and, and word in the world. world um, I guess that's the principle. You know, you have something in your mind and and it's, it's, it's there. Well, you, there's something like in our previous conversation you brought up, um, which is something that, is it Michaela's dad? That asks yes. a question yes. about like kind of what is in the this documentary. For? What is this doing? For yeah, you? that's right. He says at one point they've panned to the dad, and, and I guess they're asking him like, "Is this more?" He says like, "Yeah." When I think about what my daughter's doing and quizzing, like he kind of doesn't get it. He's like, "Is it a spiritual thing or a religious thing, or is it an intellectual thing?" He's like, "I think it's more of an intellectual thing," which is, I guess, takes us into the mystery of studying the Bible yeah. that it straddles these worlds in ways that. You know, and depending on one's religious tradition, the spiritual and the intellectual can be very far apart or they can be more or less integrated. Intertwined. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that was part of the joy of it was watching these students. They're coming of age and they're doing something that's so countercultural on every level, right? Like, as you mentioned, they're they're developing sustained attention, which is something that we don't usually do in our society. They're mm-hmm. using their memories there. Mm-hmm. And then they're doing it with this really ancient text that is very out of step with the youth culture around totally, them. Totally, totally. Um, and so there's something sort of enjoyable and admirable. It reminds me of, I know that this episode is coming out uh, close in, to when we're doing one on a science fair where it's right. also about young people yes, who are doing fair. something that yes. is very yes. like countercultural. And there's something just kind of admirable about oh, watching totally. these youths. Like, oh, yeah. Makes me kind of hopeful about the future. <laughs> it makes me hopeful too. If you want to be hopeful and you want to get into some teenage heartbreak and stuff, watch Bible Quiz 2013 and Science Fair uh, documentaries. Um, they, they'll, they'll put you on the right path. Yeah. Hey, we're so, so happy and so lucky today to have as our guest, Dr. Eve Lavavi Feinstein, who's a writer and editor in the San Francisco Bay Area. She has a PhD, like me, in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from Harvard University. Fancy. Yeah, she's super fancy. Um, She's the author (laughs) of Sexual Pollution in the Hebrew Bible. What a great title that is, by the way. Um, she's an editor. She writes for the Torah.com and, 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 and is a contributor for other projects as well. Dr. Feinstein, thanks so much for joining us for this. Welcome. Yeah, cool. Well, we're really excited to have you with us and thank you for spending some of your, your afternoon. We have one question for you right off the bat is, can you tell us a little bit about your religious background, your upbringing, or what your earliest memories of the Bible would be? Sure. So, um, I grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish community, um, and I went to modern Orthodox day school, um, for elementary school and for high school. Um, so, you know, we started reading the Bible in Hebrew in like third grade, I think. Wow. That's Um, that's pretty early. That's early in Hebrew too. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a slow process. They're like reading in a foreign language when you're third grade, but so it was it was a foreign language. Like it wasn't like people spoke Hebrew in their homes or anything like that necessarily. Some of the kids did. I mean, I didn't, um, but um, you know, they were speaking modern Hebrew, obviously not biblical Hebrew. Um, but the classes were taught at least when we had the better teachers. <laughs> the classes <laughs> were taught in Hebrew and modern Hebrew, and then we read the text. Wow. Wow. So your earliest, I mean, your earliest interaction with the text then was in its original language, like not for most of us. I mean, how, how do you think that affected you as you, as you went about reading the text? Like, was it, did you feel like you had some kind of like primal connection to God, like reading like that way or something? Um, I felt like I had a primal connection to the text. I don't know whether it connected <laughs> I mean, I really did. Like I, I, you know, kept studying that in college, partly because it like did feel like a part of me. Mm. And it was something I could do. Also, you know, I went into college and not everybody was reading biblical Hebrew when they were in third grade. And so like, that was a little bit of a leg up. So, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like a comfort subject in some ways. What's the, what, what's like the, sh- I mean, I know that this could probably be a question that you could answer at great length, but like, what's like a snippet version answer to like, what's mo- what's modern Orthodox Judaism? Like, what is that? Um, yeah, whatever I say, they're going to be people who are going to be like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how it is with Jewish denominations. But uh, I, I guess um, Orthodox Judaism is basically the most traditional um, form of Judaism. So um, observing Jewish practices in the most traditional ways. Um, and modern or so let's uh, branch out a little bit like the reform movement was sort of a very modernizing um, stream of Judaism that was moving away from what was there before. Mm-hmm. So you could say like orthodoxy is in some ways a response to reform because before reform, there was no other thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so modern orthodoxy is sort of a, an attempt to bring um, traditional Judaism sort of more into modernity. Um Practically speaking, today, the schools that I went to, when I say I went to modern Orthodox day schools, they were schools that took both um, Jewish and secular learning very seriously. And it was a really long school day because we did like twice, double everything, you know. Wow. Wow. So, for our listeners who this is their first kind of introduction to modern um, Orthodox Judaism, can you talk a little bit about how um, Jewish readers read and interpret the Bible. Um, you know, Protestants uh, and Catholics and Orthodox Christians, there's a huge broad spectrum of how they approach the Bible. Can you speak a little bit to um, how you were raised and um, how Jewish readers interpret the the scriptures? Sure. So, I should say that, like, I don't describe myself as, as modern Orthodox anymore. Um, I'm more in a conservative community. Conservative Judaism is sort of like broke off from reform that was sort of like, um, hey, wait, you're moving too fast kind of a thing. So wait, so wait, so it sounds like you all, so it sounds like you all have the same kind of fragmentation that, that we cherish in Christianity, <laughs> all these breaks and stuff like that. Sounds familiar. We yeah, love it. You, say, you know, Orthodox, conservative, and reform, and there are actually like 20 other ones that people aren't even mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess, um, again, I don't love this description, but like conservative Judaism is like the middle one, I guess, if you think of the three main ones. So, um, in terms of like how traditional it is, um, so yeah, but I'm still, uh, pretty traditional in my practice relative to most right. conservative Jews. What? So you would, you would ask about like how, why don't you go back on that a second? 
Yeah, yeah. Talk about talk about Bible. I mean, it's 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 hard to just like ask how do Jews interpret the Bible. We know that that's too broad. But like, how how have Jews traditionally thought about the Bible? Like, is it inspired? Is it God's word? Are there certain techniques that are are very kind of traditional Jewish reading techniques? Like, talk about that. There's like such a huge spectrum in terms of like perspectives on like what the Bible is and biblical authority and where it comes from. Um, like generally speaking. Um, in the Orthodox world, which is where I grew up, there is sort of a more, I guess we would describe as fundamentalist perspective on biblical authorship. So um, the Torah, right, which is the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first part, um, is usually thought of as like directly the word of God dictated to Moses and so on. Um, Conservative Jews, conservative rabbis, when they're being ordained, learn it more from like a modern critical perspective that they're human authors and maybe divinely inspired, something like that. Um, so, um, but the way I was originally, like the way I learned the text in school is like, you know, this is the word of God, but we were learning them. We were learning the text with kind of traditional Jewish commentaries and um, kind of two basic interpretive modes in ancient Jewish um, ancient Jewish biblical interpretation, there's an idea that there are four, including mystical traditions, but the two major ones are called Pshat and Drash. Um, and Pshat is like the plain, it comes from the word for plain or simple. And it's like kind of surface level, like normal way to read anything. Mm-hmm, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like, like Pshat would be like, you're not, you're not, you're not taking things as wild symbols. You're not taking it mystically. It's like a person walk, you know, Moses walked into the room. It just means Moses a guy walked, walked into, into the room. room. Not, okay. not like somebody's soul went on some kind of flight or something like that. Exactly. And it might be like, you know, it might not be an obvious thing, then it wouldn't require interpretation, but you'd like, look at the context. You look at the text the same way. If you were like an English class, you're trying to figure out what's going on in right, the narrative. Right. And Drash is really like more kind of wild, like there are these deep dives into individual words and sometimes connections drawn from different places. And there's all, it's very expansive. There's like a lot added to the text um, that isn't necessarily there. So one example that's kind of fun um, is like in the 10 plagues um, on the Egyptians, there's the plague of the frogs. So Moses uh, says to Aaron, stretch forth your hand and or your staff and bring frogs out onto the land of Egypt. Classic. Um, nice. <laughs> so then it says Aaron spread out his hand and the frog came out and covered the land of Egypt. So switch from plural to singular. So a shot interpretation of that would be, well, the singular is being used as a collective. There was this giant mass of frogs. And um, so it's called uses the singular in Hebrew and that's the way it's translated. A lot of translations will say frogs, but, it, um, but, it, but in Hebrew, you're saying it just says frog. It says frog in the singular. So bring out a it, single frog. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, so the drash or the midrash, um, basically like the premise of this is the Bible. It's the word of God. It's just like different from any other text. And you can't have just a random singular to plural thing and then be like, Oh, brush it off. Like, Oh, it really means plural. It's a singular. So there are four interpretations basically given to this. One of them is actually Aaron just conjured up this giant frog and it covered the entire land of Egypt. Oh, that's my favorite. I Let's just it. stop there. That's yep. the best. Just one giant frog. That's uh, that that tra- that transforms the whole story right there because it becomes like completely a horror movie. It becomes like a horror movie. That's I like right. It. 
It's actually a classic. Like I might, I was talking to uh, my spells about it last night. And I was like, I think, you know, I, I think my mirror brought up, bring up the thing about like the plague of the frog. And he's like, you mean the one giant frog? <laughs> <laughs> I love Every, it. Everybody knows about it. I love it. it. Okay. What are these? What, what, what? Kids, kids learn in school. So the second interpretation is um, that there was one frog that Aaron conjured up. Um, and then it whistled and like lots and lots of other frogs came. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, cool. Like coach frog. Coach frog comes up and <laughs> rallies other frogs. Um, and then a third interpretation is that it was one frog and then it gave birth to lots and lots of frogs. Okay. Very, okay. Na- very, very kind of na- naturalistic frog. sort yeah. of explanation there. It would t- take a little while though. You can't just do that like overnight <laughs> yeah. if you're going to go with that. No, it might have been like a very, very fertile frog. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? These were different. These were different times. I and, like and, it. and where did the first frog come from? So we're in a weird world here. Clearly, right? It came out of the water. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the fourth interpretation is that it started as one frog, and then the Egyptians would hit it, and then it spewed forth lots and lots of frogs. Oh, that one's my favorite. Oh, that's really? Scary. Do you think that one's better than the one frog, though? I mean, the one frog still—that's so iconic. Yeah, because I have sort of a reoccurring nightmare about spiders doing that. So I um, feel like if I were scared of frogs this would just be absolutely terrifying i love it i love it i agree actually that like having like lots and lots of fro- actually it's oh. a little like gremlins right is that how it works with the little the gremlins come out of oh, the one right. <laughs> yes yeah. yes like i'd be worried i'd find one in my closet or something well there's probably one in your closet right now and i think you should go stop, home and look okay stop. so so this kind of interpretation i think i think it has it's it, it's a kind of it's a kind of close attention to the text like and it assumes that the text is is very intentional. Like it's not a mistake. Let's say in the text that there that it's singular. Like that has to mean something. Um, I mean, is there a sense then that this kind of interpretation with these multiple options then is a way of sort of preserving the status of the scriptures as holy in Judaism? In that, you know, if the text means that much or could mean that much, it's just like meaning is everywhere, basically. Yeah. No, I definitely think that. Hmm. What about you know? If you said this in an English class, you yeah, know, you know you're a moron, right? It's like just because that's how not how you do a normal <laughs> text. It's a way of saying like this is not a normal text. Everything in it is meaningful. Yeah, right. I think. Right. That makes sense. We were watching um, earlier in, in the podcast, we were talking about a documentary we had just watched called Bible Quiz, and it's about this Christian practice in some churches of basically like people will memorize like entire books of the Bible. This is usually the New Testament. Although this past year for the first time, right now, the current group that's doing this Bible quiz, it's a national thing. They're doing the book of Jonah, which is oh, the first interesting. Old Testament or Hebrew Bible book that they've ever done. So anyway, but it's mostly New Testament huh. books. And then they'll like competitively engage in like game show quizzing and they have like a national champion and all this kind of it's stuff. It's like really high stakes pub Really quizzing. high stakes. It was a really fun documentary. I would totally recommend it. It's called Bible Quiz. I, is there is there any analog to that in Jewish communities about like memorizing text and then like competing with each other in some way? Oh yeah, that? there is. Um, it's called Kidona Tanakh, um, which is like the, the Bible quiz. I think it's like the same thing. Oh really? Bible <laughs> quiz. That's awesome. <laughs> um, it's uh, based in Israel, um, but there's also um, a diaspora like version of it. There's a special prize because I think so. I actually did this when I was in high school. No way. Um, <sighs> cool. Yeah, and there's it's, so it's been a while, but there was like 
the people who won were always Israeli. So there was like this special prize for like the diaspora winner. Oh, <laughs> yeah. There's Israel and then there's you, everybody else. Basically. You know what? It must be something with biblical scholars because Brian was a Bible quizzing coach back in the day <laughs> as well. So I think it's that there's true, something it's true. here. I didn't want to do that. I was forced to do it more or less because of a position I was in. Was that something you volunteered? Like you did you joyfully participate in Jewish Bible quiz or no? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I was such a dork. Like, I mean, <laughs> it hasn't changed also. It's just like you get older and you find your people and then you like feel less weird because you're surrounded by the same kind of weirdos. Right. But um, I, yeah, I was into that and it was something to do. So, yeah. I don't know if you know <laughs> very much about the history of it, but I'm sort of curious, like, is that an Israeli invention? Like, uh, so the American Bible quizzing thing comes out of like the 1950s, kind of after the liberal fundamentalist modern you know, controversies. And it, and I'm just curious if that's something that also happened around the same time in Israel, or I don't know if you, you know. have no idea. So. <laughs> now I'm curious. I want to find out. But I mean, okay, but generally... <laughs> yeah, e- I'm going to go to Google and figure this out. Yeah, yeah, e- yeah. Even, even apart from the Bible quizzing, though, competitively, I mean, the role of like, in terms of like Jewish learning of scripture, memorization is a big deal, right? Like this idea that you know, that young people would memorize, like, say, a large portion of the Torah or even the entire Torah? Isn't that kind of like an initiation sort of rite that one has? Um, I mean, I think that before it was so easy to get books, right? Mm-hmm. That was something that it was really important to memorize things. And so that is probably something that trickled into some of our traditions. Um, when... So when the Torah is read out of a scroll in synagogue, there are no vowels and there's no punctuation or anything. Mm -hmm. So one of the things when you're learning, and most people do it the first time at their bar or about mitzvah when they turn 12 or 13, um, they'll come and read from the Torah. And because there are no vowels and there's no punctuation, there's a lot of memorization there. You have the consonants. There's also this like, um, cantillations, like a tune that goes with it, and you have to memorize all of that also. Right. Um, it's a little different from like memorizing huge passages, although once you've gone over something enough times trying to get like the vowels right, you often know by heart. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty daunting just to like show up there at the podium or the lectern or whatever, not having memorized it and just be trying to like do it on the fly. Like that would that would be tough. I guess now we're now we're geeking out like, and, and there's and a system of hand signals that um my spouse and I use it sometimes because, like, now that we have kids, it's hard to like learn in advance. So, like, it's it's actually a very ancient thing. Like, you can t- signal to the other person. It doesn't give them the vowels, but it gives them like the oh wow oh that is amazing. Well, okay, I have a, a question selfishly because when um, you said yes to being interviewed by us, I got really excited about your book, um, Sexual Pollution in the Hebrew Bible, because I have done some gender theory as well. And I'm just curious um, about, well, I, I guess my first question is, how did you come to write this this particular book? Um, what inspired you? Um, yeah, because... It, Christians and Christian communities, especially evangelical communities, are very interested in this topic, sex in the Bible. Very, so, very interested. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear her talk about this. Yeah. So how did you come to this topic? Um, well, so the word pollution um, in the title is a translation of the Hebrew term tum'ah, um, or the adjective is temeh, which is often translated um, impure or unclean. Um, and I think I actually like the translation contamination now. I think mm. that, I don't know if I wrote it again and called it sexual contamination in the Hebrew Bible. I don't know which title is better. But 
Um, that sort of encapsulates the way I understand the concept, which um, is that there's kind of this invisible, infectious force of some sort. Um, and it's used in um, a bunch of different contexts. And I would say I came to this mostly like actually being interested in this word and <laughs> why it's what it means, why it's used in so many different ways, like how that all fit together. Um, so it comes up in these very technical ritual contexts. Like there's certain things, if you touch them, um, a dead body or like menstrual blood or semen, bodily fluids like that, um, then that contaminates you. And then you can't go to the sanctuary or the tabernacle or touch holy things. Um, it's also used for foods you can't eat like pork. And, um, then it also comes up in these sexual contexts, like, um, if a woman commits adultery, that's described as contaminating her. And um, it just seemed like that was actually the least studied aspect of it, which was interesting to me. I think it's actually that people thought they understood it already. That's mm, like, you, yeah. know, you hear about, you know, oh, if you like touch this bodily fluid, then you need this purification ritual. And that's like weird and people need to explain it, but it's like, Oh, you commit adultery. And then, um, it's often translated defiled. Like the woman is defiled by that. And it seems intuitive to people and, you know, Oh, of course. And I'm like, I don't know, is it clear? But, um, so that's sort of how I came to that. It's, I would say like on one hand convenient that it's about sex because like everyone's interested in that. Yeah. Who's not interested in that. <laughs> I heard someone once say that they thought that uh, in, in, a, in an academic setting, like that sex is the only inherently interesting topic basically in religious <laughs> studies. Like that's everything else. It could be interesting for some other reason, but sex in religious studies, it just stands on its own. Yeah. Boom. You don't have to explain that. You know, things. I mean, like I was reading a, a writing guide at one point, it was like, nothing except sex is interesting until you make it interesting. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. That's I like good. it. Words to live by. Yeah. I, for me, it felt actually a little bit inconvenient because I had written about like kind of a sex gender topic for my undergrad thesis. And this is like my doctoral dissertation. I really kind of wanted to be a like a Bible scholar and not like a lady Bible scholar. Right. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it is one of those things also with more women moving into the field, like happens in a lot of fields, you kind of start bringing a different lens to these things. And that's right. So. Because even just the fact that you're asking like, well, wait a second, do we know what that word actually means? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Is it so obvious that you are contaminated when like a woman, especially like the language is usually applied to women, right? That's fascinating. Um, is that, you know, is that obvious or what it means or is it not? Well, in this like modern setting where we talk about sex in the Bible a lot, it seems like in the public sphere, is there one takeaway from your book that you think that people like this general American public would benefit from? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that um, and maybe this has to do with more approaching the Bible. I think that... Um, one of the things that was important for me in terms of discovering it and also conveying it is that there's an aspect to this way of looking at, um, at sex and at a lot of other things as, um, contaminating. That's like very, very, um, natural. And I think universal, I mean, it's, it's like, I don't know if maybe this is more a woman's experience, but like if you, there's some like really creepy guy and he gets like a little too close to you. And then you're like, 
Ugh, I have to take a shower, right? <laughs> yeah. That's that kind of thing. Like, did, did he, like, leave anything on you? What do you have to wash off? So that's, like, a very kind of a, a deep thing. And, um, you know, we apply that to a lot of different um, contexts. And so, um, and that's part of why I think this kind of language is obvious and intuitive to a lot of people. And at the same time, there's an aspect of it that's, like, very cultural, um, and we don't necessarily notice that, um, you know, what's really like, and cause, because there's like a close connection between what like is intuitive and what is, what we're absorbing from the outside culture. So I guess what I wanted to do is be a little bit more, you know, critical about that in terms of approaching biblical texts. And I think it's also important in general and looking at like, what are our social norms and what are our personal feelings, um, about these sort of things to say, okay, is it like, you know, where's this feeling coming from? Right. Right. We've got to wrap up here, Dr. Feinstein. I'm getting the feeling we could actually keep talking about this for a very long yes. time. This is super interesting. Before we go really quick, is there like a particular ritual or verse or passage in the Torah or in Leviticus in particular, a, a book most Christians kind of like consider flyover territory that you would say, oh no, this is so weird. You got to look at this one thing quickly, quickly. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, it's weird religion, right? Yep, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Weirder the better. There's um, there's this one ritual, and I think you said quickly, so I'm going to have to summarize it. It's actually like a really long one. Yeah, yeah, but, summarize. Um, yeah, it's for somebody who is, if you have this disease that's usually translated leprosy, that's considered to be contaminating. Um, and so you have to be purified from it. And there's this whole long process by which you get to like enter the place of habitation again. So part of this um, purification ritual is that a priest takes two live birds and some cedar wood and some crimson fabric and some hyssop and slaughters one of the birds and um, into like an earthen vessel over wearing water and then takes the other stuff, which includes like the live bird and all this stuff and uh, dips the live bird into the blood of the dead bird and then sends it off. What? So the live bird is like flying covered in blood through the sky. (laughs) So it's like this is like an elimination ritual, like it's carrying yes. the contamination away. Um, later, there's a sacrifice, and the blood from the sacrifice is put on the person who's being purified on their earlobe and their right, the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe. And that's another part of the purification procedure. Um, and finally, after that, there's a sacrifice. There's some oil also, this right is- ear, right. Right, and there's a sacrifice, and then they are considered pure again. Um, so, well, that's something to do on a Saturday. Yeah, I mean, what? Let's 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 get into <laughs> let's this. Do it. Let's do it. <laughs> let's end on this note. Just the image of a flying, bloodied bird <laughs> with the blood of another bird on it is yeah. a great place to yeah. end. Doctor Feinstein, thank you so much for thank doing this you. with us. We appreciate this so much. Okay. <laughs> thank you so great much. Great to have you. See you later. Ah, uh, well, that was fun to talk to her. I should, you know, I should have mentioned, I didn't mention when I was introducing her, there were so many great things I could say about her. Yeah. We also, we went to school at the same time. That's so great. And, I mean, we overlapped, like, and we had some classes together. Not not a ton of classes, but like, I've known her for, you know, like, well over 10 years. Well, that was really fun getting to know. And it was fun hearing you guys, you know, talk a little bit about Harvard and what that was like. <laughs> yeah, we were yeah. talking before the recording came on. Yeah. We were, I was just chatting with, with Eve about, you know, what our seminar, we, we were in the seminar together. 
Um, and this just goes, maybe, maybe this just gives you a window into like, how is the Bible taught? How are biblical scholars trained at an elite institution? Like we yeah. would sit in the seminar and it would be all the professors would be in the seminar and all the students and the professors are all sitting at the head of the table. And, you know, there were points like we would all have to write a paper and then kind of like perform in front of them to like be subject that to their critique. That terrifying. And, oh, it was horrible. Like, and you know, they were, they were super great about it, the professors. It was very professional, but in some ways it was very old school. Like yeah. you had to like pay respects in a certain way and you could tell when they were mad. And there was one time that a professor threw a paper at somebody, <laughs> a paper they were supposed to have cited in their study, but oh they didn't. Gosh. It happened also to be a paper that that professor had written, oh, right. which was neglected, coincidentally, which had been neglected. And so <laughs> I, you know, it, and I think this professor was kind of joking, but it was also had an edge. Like, can you really joke about something like that? No, it, you no. know, so yeah. Anyway, what, yeah, go ahead. The ritualized like power exchange there, like with all the professors in front, that just yeah. sounds so scary. Well, and you know, and I think there's this, you know, to hear Dr. Feinstein talk about, you know, um, her experience um, as a Jew, you know, reading the text and, you know, it seems like there's just this intensity, right? Like learning Hebrew in third grade and going on. And, yeah. and a lot of the Jewish scholars who were my colleagues there had a similar experience. And I always felt you know, as a non-Jew, like I just, I was always like behind them because they could always just pronounce so well. And, That's cool. But then in some ways we were kind of on more equal footing with the language than you would think, which was weird, but you know, but Eve is super brilliant, but you know, whatever the case. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I was not, uh, the New Testament isn't my main thing, but I did study um, with a, a really wonderful Jewish New Testament scholar, Amy Jill Levine. Oh yeah. And um, she like one of the things that she said was that some uh, oftentimes students who come from evangelicalish backgrounds um have in terms of like just biblical knowledge mm -hmm. have a leg up right. compared to many other students because of the high view right. that evangelicals have of the scriptures now they may have all sorts of um different presumptions about what that you know right. entails but i will say from my own perspective like cuz i grew up in a charismatic background very biblically infused. I just grew up reading the Bible so much mm -hmm. that I will say that I think that the intro to New Testament class, kind of the big hazing course mm -hmm. um, of my graduate school experience, I had a huge leg up because I just knew the stuff. Right. Well, yeah, think, I knew all the Bible I mean, stories. Yeah, and if you'd done like Bible quizzing, you know, or something like <laughs> right. that. that would be even more. I mean, you're sitting there. I mean, here's the question though, and I think this is a question a lot of evangelicals in particular, um, a lot of American Christians have on their mind thinking about the Bible and education, which is, is that still true now for students who are 18 through 22, say coming into college, yeah. that they have that background and that they actually see the text in this way? Or has it become almost like vestigial at this point? Like it's a ghost of what it used to be. Like people know they're supposed to care, but they don't actually. Well, uh, I mean, what's your – so I've taught some intro classes. Most of my intro classes are church history, which evangelicals have never really prioritized church right. history. So I don't necessarily come into the class expecting that. But you teach a lot of intro Bible classes. What, what's been your experience? Well, I've already given away the game there with my question. <laughs> See, <laughs> listen, questions. the listeners can tell, like, all of our questions, all of my questions, I'm so bad. They're just things I want to answer myself. It's not true. It's not true. I do have genuine. Sometimes, so I ask a question. I'm like, dang, that was a good question. Now I want to answer. Now I okay? want to answer. So, but yeah, I mean, I've already given the lead there, which is that, yeah, I get a sense that students know it's supposed to be something that they see as important. But it's not actually. And my experience is with average Christian students don't know basic stories of the Bible. Well, my oh, I don't know. I My experience with students is that they know 
versions, many times like VeggieTales versions, right? Which oh, are incomplete. Don't get me started on VeggieTales. <laughs> right. I'm going to break some hearts. Let's just. Oh no! I'm going to break them. No, I don't care. We're getting later break in our them. season of our recording here. Our producer is laughing really hard. He's right laughing. Now. I'm going to break. I'm going to break some hearts. <laughs> I hate VeggieTales. I don't think anybody should be watching it. <gasps> oh no! I think it's horrible. I think it gives kids a horrible, distorted view of the Bible. I think that Why? there are different, better ways to teach kids the Bible than what, making them watch a cucumber, put a crown on, and stuff. <laughs> I just, no, no, I don't like it. I think it's badly done and I don't like it. And I don't care what anyone thinks. <gasps> oh about my that. gosh. We're going to get in a Twitter war with. Let's do it. Bill Vesher. We, we need a Twitter <laughs> war. We need it. We need something at this point. Okay. I just look, it's not. It's, so I'll back off and, and say a little bit like, obviously there's craft here and there's right, animation. Right, there are people. Right. It's not about that. I'm just saying you're, t- you're taking stuff that is like blood and guts and difficult stuff. And it's like when you transform that to make it palatable for kids, you distort it in a way that's unacceptable. Like the, I mean, the Esther one. I mean, we're, you know, we've been yeah, talking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we've about talked like in, rape in we, Esther. We talked in another episode um, about this idea of like Esther and like how this would compare to like modern dating rituals. I mean, that's a brutal book. Yeah. It's comedic. True. Yeah. But it's, there's lots of non-consensual sex happening in that. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, like I, I guess I just, and maybe these are just my own conflicts about like raising my own daughters who are, you know, elementary school aged about like how I want them to encounter the Bible. And, right. how I don't, and that's, it's really tough. I, that's why I admit I'm conflicted about this and I, I, I don't really know. I don't have an alternative. Oh, Mr. Big Shot, like you don't like VeggieTales. What's Make the, your own VeggieTales. What's the solution then? <laughs> I guess I'm just saying Okay, here, let, let me float this idea by you. As an historian of religion, I think okay. you, you might enjoy this idea, okay? And okay. this, I steal this idea from, from a scholar named Timothy Beale, um, who's a fantastic scholar of religion and, and biblical studies. He writes a lot of popular stuff, but he's like a serious scholar too. Um, he has a book called The Rise and Fall of the Bible. I think it was published around 2012. Um, I think he teaches at Case Western. Oh, okay. Yeah, Timothy Beale, B-E-A-L, um, super great. And in this book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, he talks about this idea of the Bible's holiness, among evangelicals. And he says, evangelicals, you've got a problem. You've got a big problem on your hands. Yeah. And here's what the problem is. And, and he, he gives kind of an analogy of the role. I think he gives an analogy of a Rolex watch. Interesting. Like, okay, let's, why is a Rolex watch what a Rolex is? Yes, there's a production process that goes into it. Yes, it's expensive. But does everyone have one? No. So this is the point. There's an inaccessibility that goes hand in hand with the idea of holiness, mm-hmm. right? Like not everyone can just have it. You get a Rolex and you get a Rolex and not everybody has one. And now it's like, that's not a status symbol anymore. Um, and so he invokes a marketing concept of brand dilution. Oh, interesting. And says essentially what Christians have done with the Bible is a brand, uh, what evangelical Christians in America have done with the Bible is a, br- a form of brand dilution. It's everywhere. I think he cites a statistic. He says American Christians on average, I think it's like they own like seven or nine Bibles because why would Christians own so many Bibles? What's wrong with the other Bibles? It's not like an issue like I need a better translation. Like some of these Bibles are just duplicates. Yeah. It's because when the new year comes or when there's an important event, we're like, I've got to get a Bible. I got to get my spiritual life back on track. And as consumerists, the only way we know how to express our values is by buying something. Kind of like in the new year, you want to work out. It's like, I'm going to buy a new workout. A gym membership. I'm going to buy a gym membership. I'm going to buy new workout clothes. I totally yeah. did that this year, by the way. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to start playing basketball this year. What's the best step to playing basketball? Going buying out, socks. Going out and actually playing? No, it was buying socks and buying <laughs> shorts. So he's saying, yeah, this is what we do with the Bible. And so he's like, you put a Bible in every hotel room. They're just, it's like, they're like garbage. 
Now, Judaism, maybe we would have something to learn here from Judaism where, you know, the Torah is is paraded in yeah. to, to the synagogue, like held high. It's kept in a certain place. If we believe the, the kind of things that we say we believe, like this is like a letter from God, but like, oh, yeah. but I haven't read it. You know, like there's something weird about that. That's a paradox to say that you believe some, that a text is like a divine, but then on the other hand, you kind of like treat it like trash and you've never read it. Like that's weird, right? Yeah. Well, I think I, I would also add like Roman Catholic services, um, you know, in, in the mass, yes. there's this really wonderful moment where um, the Bible is paraded in. And I remember right. talking with somebody who had been to mass, but wasn't very familiar with Catholicism. They're like, yeah, you know, they bring that, that relic in. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you mean the Bible? The Bible, yeah, the relic. <laughs> that they proceed to open and They're weird, and read. outdated idols, the Bible, for yeah, example. Yeah, that they yeah. open and then read and everyone stands and they, right. they you know, have their, there's a ritualized element where mm-hmm. you um, are basically like setting your body aside to hear the scriptures. Right. Um, but no, I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I mean, what would you say about this in terms of like, okay, just this issue of like just the way that religion is commercialized and so on. I mean, you've even done research on this question sure. of like the way that like America, certain kinds of American Christians have, you know, advertised themselves. I mean, does this really undercut the holiness of the content of the thing or does it work in some other way? Like it kind of comes back and you can make it holy again. Like what you get, what you lose in holiness, you get an accessibility and it all kind of comes out in the wash. Well, I think that that is like the 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 question of the Protestant age, right? Like, mm. so from the very beginning, I once was asked to teach a class on like the history of the Bible, mm-hmm. basically like what the Bible as we know it. Right. And really from the very like beginnings of the Protestant era, the Bible and its, and like the technologies that go into manufacturing the Bible have been critical to spreading like this kind of Protestant ethos. So, and, and, the American version of that, like, you know, the King James Version, the Geneva Bible, the Schofield Bible, right. Jefferson Bible. There's like Americans have produced tons and tons of different Bibles. We love Bible versions. We love Bible versions. We also love to sell things. <laughs> we love commercialism. We love commercialism. So we're sort of like the ideal breeding ground for creating like this this Bible, um, like mass, I don't know, economic structure. Yeah, like, just like a mania of Bibles. Yeah. Basically. So I, I'm working on a research project right now that's not necessarily related to Bible production, but I was wanting to get some data, sales data on Christian publishing. Mm. And I talked to people in all the major Christian publishers, Thomas Nelson, Zondervan, Lifeway, every single person to a person was like, oh, well, by far the biggest selling product we have is the Bible. Right. Like by far, right. like, like, like they don't even include it on the New York Times bestseller list because no, it would just always be. It would be, be number one all the time. Yeah. So they're like, well, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely our biggest industry. Now I can tell you about all the little things that we do, right, you know, right. like huge books, like the purpose driven life or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that is dwarfed by the, by Bible right. sales. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's something to that. I think also though, like what the Bible is, has, has changed over time in terms of its place in American society. Like, so there's a book, um, and it's called Imperial Bibles, Domestic Bodies mm. um, by a woman named, oh, shoot, what is her name? Um, Mary Wilson Carpenter. And one of the things that she talks about in this book is the the place of the family Bible, mm, like this mm-hmm. idea that the Bible isn't necessarily something that you uh, read or even consume 
Um, and it's certainly not like the way that Dr. Feinstein was talking about just how the 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 scriptures were just like recorded in her consciousness mm-hmm. as a young child, mm-hmm. but rather it is a status symbol, basically, like ah, in the right. Victorian age. Right. So like you get those big, fancy, beautiful family Bibles that are basically family history books. You know, you put so-and-so married to so-and-so and they had this kid and blah, 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 blah. Right. You don't not need to read that Bible. In fact, most people didn't read mm-hmm. those Bibles. They're beautiful illustrations, but like the fancier, nicer Bible that you could get for your family was really like an ode to the family. Sure. And an ode to like domestic life more than it was yeah. well, any sort of like holy in item. Right. You know? It reminds me of like getting married and getting like a like a giant cut glass crystal bowl like that right. you're never going to use. But it's about that ideal like we are now hosts and it's beautiful and this is what we are as a home. Yeah. Home. So that almost like why do you even need to know about whatever obscure like Gideon or some other like right. you know some obscure judge you know like yeah. you don't need to know about that right. you just need to know right. that your family has the like the fancy illustrated right. bible right no this is all I, this is all making sense to me i the thing that gets under my skin and, and i would say fuels me in a way professionally as someone who teaches this material though to keep dwelling on this paradox is like how can you have a population that says they care about something when every indication says that they don't Right. And I I just think that you can only push that so far before that breaks. You can only push your words so far about, oh, the Bible's this and the words that that people use. Inerrant, it's inerrant. How dare you say da, 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 da. But, you know, I I heard, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a cynical story, but there was a a secular professor um, of New Testament who who told the story. I heard it in a lecture. He said, yeah. And he taught kind of in, you know, not quite in the Bible belt, but a place where the Bible was definitely culturally revered in the United States, like in North Carolina. He said, he had a big lecture hall, like 300 students. And on the first day of class, intro to the Bible. And he's, he's not a Christian. He's an atheist. And the students probably know this, but he said, yeah, how many people in here, by the way, just raise your hand. How many people in here have read no, I think he started like this. He goes, how many people in here believe that the Bible is like, I don't know, like a letter that God wrote humanity, that it is God's word, all of it, that it is divine and that God bequeathed it to the human race. Raise your hand if you believe that. And like he said, like 275 people raised their hands. Wow. Like it was almost everybody. There were a couple of people sitting there yeah. with their arms crossed, but yeah. not many. Yeah. And he was like, okay, wow, that's a high number. It just shows you, you know, how important this text is to people, you know. And then he was like, by the way, and this was back in the Da Vinci Code time. Okay. Oh, so boy. he said, how yeah. many people, by the way, he said, how many people in here have read the Da Vinci Code? And like, like 200 people raised their hand. It was like a popular <laughs> book at that time. Yeah. He goes, by the way, how many people in here have read the whole Bible? Ooh. Crickets, right? Interesting. Like five people. And he's like, wait. You mean to tell me that you think God wrote a letter to humanity? And you've never read but it. But you haven't read it? See, it's that paradox right there. Yeah. And where it's like, okay, how is that? Po- like, you don't believe what you're saying. Like, if you say, if, if you really believe that God wrote a letter to humanity, but you're like, yeah, I'll get to reading it someday. I haven't. Okay, but the jig is up. Like, you don't believe that then, right? Is that well, fair? Yeah. I mean, if you're somebody We who all thinks- fall short, right? We all fall short. There are things we want to do that we can't, but making such a staggering claim that the book was written by God essentially, and you're like, yeah, but I didn't read it. I don't know. Like, well, there's something uh, weird there, right? Something's off. Well, um, okay. Yeah. I, to be to be fair to the people who be I mean, fair, I, be I've, fair to I've them. I'm the, not being fair. I don't care. I've like. read the entire Bible, and I know you have too. <laughs> yes. Um, and I can tell you that there are definitely like high points and like points that are a little more boring. Like right. there are some parts that are just like 
it's it's just in and of itself interesting. Anything yeah. with violence or sex, mainly, you know, like that's just right. like interesting. Right. But then there are, you know, lengthy like Levitical code sections where it's just like right. this is about what to do if, you know, um, an ox gores somebody and like, totally. you, you know, stuff like that. So I can see how, um, to be fair, it is a lengthy book. Books. Right. They are lengthy books. And um, but also I think that isn't it a part of the human experience that to, that that we always have this weird relationship between beliefs and practices? Totally. Like, you know, I mean, you assume that if you're going to have a religion, that there's this sort of superstructure where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you believe this and therefore you practice this. But really people fudge on that all the time. <laughs> it's true. So, But it's achievable. We're just talking about a book. I mean, the Bible is long, but it's not that long. And by the way, even the stuff that you're saying, which is a good point about, you know, these low points and yeah. stuff that isn't relevant, that also challenges the issue because you believe that God wrote a letter, huge portions of which are super boring and irrelevant. Yeah. Like, wow. What a mis- what a bad author. I'm like, not saying they're irrelevant. No, I know I'm what just you're saying. saying. No, I know what you're saying. But it, I, think, a little tedious. I think it could be pushed to that point where it's like, okay, if it's tedious and if it's hard to read and if it doesn't even make sense and if much of it doesn't even apply to us today. What the heck is it even there for then? Well, I've got a question for you yeah. and I'll think about my own response while you <laughs> while you ask yeah. or while you answer it. Yeah. Is there like a, a weird story that to you, like that you can't get out of your mind? Like, oh man. Yes, totally. Oh geez. I'm just trying to think about which weird one to I know tell? there's so, I mean, there are so many or like an obscure uh, one or yeah. is there one that just kind of yeah, like yeah, yeah. comes up like, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll summarize it. I might even butcher some of the details because it is obscure, truly yeah. obscure. So this is in the book of first Kings. This is after Solomon has died. Okay. And, and the nation has split in two. So there's an Israel under David and Solomon. And it's like, yeah, we got a nation. We got a King. We have a temple. This is great. And then like right away, it's like, no, nah, now we're having a civil war. The whole thing falls <laughs> right, apart. Right. Israel's story is really a story in the Bible of failure. It almost reminds me in some ways, maybe it's a silly comparison, but it's almost like the Lord of the Rings is a story of failure. But like yeah. you learn kind of the virtues that come out of that. Yeah. I mean, the Old Testament, 75% of the Bible is a story of Israel kind of failing to do this national project, mm. which is fast, super fascinating. So this is like right at the heart of this failure. They've just failed big time. The nation is split in two, and there's a prophet who comes, and he's supposed to go do this thing. Um, and this is really in, in fact, um, 1 Kings uh, 13. Yeah, 1 Kings 13. So this is guy Jeroboam. He's like the bad guy king, and he's standing by this altar, and and there's this, there's just this, he's called a man of God, but he's like a prophet. He just comes out of nowhere. He says a rude thing to Jeroboam. Jeroboam, <laughs> like, God is against you, and Jeroboam's hand withers, you know, and all this yeah. stuff happens. Um, and Okay, so that happens. Then there's this old prophet who lives nearby, near to near, nearby in this place called Bethel. And he, he, one of his sons comes up to him and says, yeah, there's this thing that happened with Jeroboam and this prophet. Can you believe it? And the old man tells the sons to, to go saddle up a donkey. So the old man gets on the donkey, right? And he goes and, and he finds this man of God who had, who had like spoken boldly to Jeroboam. Uh-huh. So it's like two prophets confront each other. And the old man says, are you the, are you the, are you the prophet who came and did this stuff? He's like, yeah. He says, uh, come with me and let's go eat and stuff. And the, the prophet who talked to Jeroboam says, no, no, I can't do that. I was told directly, word of the Lord, do not eat or drink and return or, or return by the way that you came. Don't do it. Just like do this other thing. But the old man says, oh no, but do, he's like, dude, I'm a prophet too. And an angel came to me and said, get this guy and bring him back and feed him. So the younger guy was like, oh, okay. So he does. And as they're sitting there eating, the old guy's like, thus says the word of the Lord, you will die because you disobeyed God. He's (laughs) like, what? And he does die. Yeah. (laughs) And then 
Like stories like that, that just come up like that sort of like there's this prophetic cycle and these stories with Elijah, like the story, you know, just that sort of, so that's one that just comes to mind just randomly, but there are others that are super fascinating like that, where you just get this stuff. Now I happen to think as a person of faith and as someone who teaches the Bible, this stuff has tremendous meaning. Like there's, there's all, we could have like a part two to this where it's like, we go in and talk about like, what does this actually mean? Why is that there at this exact point in their story? Leviticus, all the weird stuff about ox scoring, all of it. But I'm still, I'm still, I will not be shaken from this haunting, this hauntedness about this idea that you have a culture that still continues to say certain words about what they think a text is. Yeah. But isn't, isn't able to even do simple things to act on that. Like that's tough. You can't, how can you say that? How can you use these exalted divine terms for a text that you can't be bothered to read? I think that that's still a problem. And I think Timothy Beale's ideal uh, idea about brand dilution, all this stuff has something to do with it. Like it's, it's been made unholy in some way. I don't know how to recover that. I don't have some grant. I'm, I'm not a pitch man with like a five point sermon here. Just saying, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would, one thing that I'm really interested in is how we, how people establish authority in, mm-hmm. in our society. And I think that when it comes to the Bible, that, you know, you can see a lot about like our current authority crisis mm-hmm. when it comes to conversations about the scripture. Because on the one hand, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point. You know, Protestants and evangelicals in particular say that the Bible is like the pinnacle of authority. Right. But when, you know, one of the great ironies of the Protestant enterprise is the idea that if you, if, you encourage widespread literacy mm-hmm. and you also lift up this idea, like this idea of priest, the priesthood of all believers, which is not exactly what the early reformers had in mind, the way it usually gets applied now. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have this constant, you, you don't like, oftentimes people think, oh, if everyone could just read the Bible for themselves, we'll all come to some sort of consensus. Well, what happens is <laughs> everybody disagrees, we didn't, right? We didn't come to that consensus. Yeah, so I think there's the authority, like what authority does the Bible have? That's that's one question, but who ha- who's authorized to interpret it? And who's right. authorized to like right. give a, a, a offer up an explanation for a strange story like that mm-hmm. on behalf of the community? Mm-hmm. And within Protestantism, we have this idea that there needs to be Oftentimes, and I think that the, the, this is a – there are a lot of flaws with I, this idea, but that there needs to be one interpretation. You right, know, like right. off, like Jewish scholars and um, practitioners are way more comfortable with like we can argue about this. We can like – we can have this productive tension wherein we, we come to good conclusions, but there doesn't necessarily need to be like one interpretation. You know, but right. Protestants have a different idea about that, and they have a really strong – evangelicals have this really strong idea about orthodoxy. So I think that it's – I mean, it's something inherent within evangelicalism in addition to the brand illusion because that's actually a really interesting point um, that wherein we're not necessarily like looking to appreciate the narrative or – the beauty of the language, but it's like, what is the right interpretation? And so yeah, we yeah. kind of have this like obsession with it. But right. anyway, so yeah. Well, thinking about the authority problem helps me at least put it in my mind a little bit like, okay, there are bigger structures here. There's a bigger, yeah. there, there's a bigger narrative going on here. There's a weird, I mean, that's a weird story though. I like it. That's <laughs> beats many of mine. Let it haunt your dreams. Okay. Okay, Shoot. we're in the kitsch corner. It's on. Kitsch corner. It's happening. It happened. <laughs> it started. 
kitsch. Kitsch, kitsch corner. Get your kitsch here. We need for the to Bible. write a catchy kitsch song. Another time. Yep. We're doing the kitsch corner here for the Bible, and we got to do this quick because yep. we spent a lot of time just like bloviating, talking about the Bible, going on and on about the Bible. So I heard about your weirdest Bible story. Yeah, you heard that wasn't even. I didn't even. You know, there was more to that story too. Like, there's this thing where there's like a lion standing <laughs> by a donkey, and like, why is the lion there? But it's symbolic. Okay. We didn't just, even get to mine. We're just gonna have. And to we, yeah, we got to move on. We got to move on. All right. We asked each other for this kitsch corner yep. just for fun. We're like, bring, bring an artifact related to the Bible, some version of the Bible that would be fun to share in a kitsch sense. Mm-hmm. Leah, what did you bring? I brought Beginner's Bible for Toddlers. Mm. Yes. Which oh, is yeah, look at that. a Zondervan What's that kids. red strap thing doing? Well, um, it's, it's like a, it's it's like like a, a handle. It's There's like a, a fabric strap on the outside. It's a Bible with a handle. Oh, so a handle. you can take it with you wherever you go. Got and it. then it has this cool... <laughs> Opening like a little Velcro yeah. button that uh, that closes it makes it almost seem like a diary or something. Uh huh. Yeah, and it is basically like it's kind of like what exactly what you were talking about the kind of kitty versions of right. Bible stories. Right. So yeah, it's it's cute, um, cartoony. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. but it it tends to leave out you know some of the things like um, when it when for example when Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really talk about like the debauchery that's going on. (laughs) Right. Right. It doesn't go into details. You know what would be a great study someone should do? Like a huge longitudinal across generations, like measuring people's respect for scripture and their views about it compared with whether or not they read these kind of oh, Bibles interesting. as kids. Yeah. I, wonder, I just wonder. Maybe like, you know, because I, I've, I've forwarded a thesis that maybe these kinds of things actually diminish the value of the Bible, even though they seem like the right thing to do. But maybe that's not true. Well, yeah, that's really interesting because I have been stubborn about this. I don't, I mean, my, um, my, we've received a lot of these, mm-hmm. um, and, and they're always well-intentioned, you know, when mm-hmm. we receive them. Um, my, my first impulse though, is just to read the Bible right. uh, to myself, but that is cause, you know, I'm like ivory tower purist or whatever, sure. but I really think like, um, he pays about the same amount of attention. Mm-hmm. So, which is not much cause he's two, <laughs> right, you know? Right. <laughs> so I'm just like, well, I'd rather, you know, have these kind of bizarro stories. Cause I'll say for myself, I read these strange stories when I was a little child. Mm-hmm. And then when I was an adult, mm-hmm. I didn't have that moment of crisis when mm-hmm. people were like, did you know there's this was in the Bible? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. I yeah. probably read it when I was like eight, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Not in the kid's Bible, though. You're talking about like the raw The Bible. real Bible. Yeah, right. the, See, the regular Bible. Okay, that's great. That would be a great point in favor of this argument that exposing kids, not exposing kids when they're really young to it, but when they're able, letting them see the full thing. Yeah. Could be really helpful. I mean, it could be a maturation kind of thing. Basically, as soon as I could read it, I read it unsupervised. Right. And it didn't seem to do me any harm. Nice. I mean, I don't know. I guess other people could tell me if it did. <laughs> we got to do that <laughs> study. How can we do that study, though? Yeah. That'd, be, that'd be so I tough. It'd be tough to do. Because you'd have to rely on self-reporting, like whether people say they read it. That's yeah. why I say you'd have to like follow kids from like age yeah, that's two true. all the way through. Like the track. Harvard happiness study or something. The Har- yeah, we should do like the, the, the Bible. The, yeah, we should do like the weird religion Bible yeah, uh, longitudinal, longitudinal study. for forty years. We're 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 committed to this until we're in our eighties. We got to talk to the institutional review board. Yep, yep. let's talk. What let's, about you? Let's what, have a chat. what Bible did you bring? Uh, so I brought. I, okay, I brought a Bible that was popular. I don't know how popular these are now. My sense is not that popular. And I I read so the same book I'd mentioned earlier, Timothy Beale's book. He brought this up, and I had been using this in class to talk about the holiness of the Bible for a while. So I felt so validated. It's a Bible zine. 
Oh, I know about Bible. A Bible zine. zine called Refuel, and there's one for girls too. This this one's for boys, but I don't know which. I forgot what the one for girls is called. Oh, like, I forgot what yeah, it's called. I, I know what it is. I've I got pictures of it somewhere. Um, yeah. the one for for young, uh, young women. But the Refuel is like a the Bible repackaged as a magazine, but for like teenage boys. That's right. So like the cover says like. It's got like all those little call outs, like in a magazine cover, like men of the sword, how unstoppable warriors got so awesome. I'm showing Leah the cover so here. So instead of like interview with whatever the right, hottest right. female actresses that right. they can like, you know, lust after, instead yep. it's men of the sword. But it mimics, We yes. should do a Freudian analysis it mim- of that. Well, well, do a Freudian analysis of this. <laughs> 70 ways to live out radical faith, the best in music and books, fight the fight, courageous and faith, how to impress the girls. Oh, how, how to impress, impress the, girls. the girls down at the bottom. Generally. But one thing about this that's fascinating on, on this question, which I will not stop harping about until the yeah. day I die, probably about, you know, the holiness in the text. They put the Bible in the magazine, right? Mm-hmm. But the way that they do it sometimes gets a little weird. Like, for example, they'll have these little like call outs, um, like, like on one page here, which is randomly, um, they have top 10 random colleges. And then it's like a list. Do you see this? <gasps> oh, like why? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Duke, Cornell. It's like, what What do you mean? Those aren't even random colleges, actually. Those are like the fancy ones. They have like <laughs> do's and don'ts. They just have a list. Do's and don'ts. Do eat your fruits and vegetables. Don't sit around and veg out all day. They have top 10 random dating pointers. By the way, just to be oh, clear. what are they? I want to know. See, do you see how this is? Yeah. What this is interspersed with. Yeah. It's interspersed with the biblical text. So the top 10 dating pointers, by the way, ra- though it's important to say they're top 10 random dating pointers yeah. in this refuel Bible zine. Number one, practice good grooming. <laughs> number two, show up on time. Number to three, dates. number three, pick her up at the door. Okay. Number four, plan okay. to meet her parents. Number five, open doors for her. Oh my gosh. Number six, compliment her looks. <gasps> oh, oh, that's because women are shallow, right? <gasps> Number, this is like, number seven, leave good tips for servers to show her that. Well, you're rich. as a former server, I that highly you, you should I, do that I anyway. endorse that. That should be numbers one through three. Number eight, use table manners. Number nine, introduce her to your friends. Number ten, treat her like a lady, guys. Okay, but here's oh, the thing no. I want. So here's the bigger cringe. <laughs> oh, here's another one. Top ten random fruits. Banana. Apple, papaya. This is a call out next to 1 Samuel 28, 1 Samuel 29. David goes back to Ziklag. Okay, here's the one I wanted to point out though. There's a page on which, um, where is this? Here it is. Yes, here it is. So on the page in 1 Samuel, so 1 Samuel's within this issue, the tragic ending of the story of Saul. Do you remember it? Do you know what how Saul's story ends? Yes. He dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He commits suicide. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. This is First Samuel 31. In battle. In battle. Really tough. I mean, Saul is like a tragic character like no other. He's actually I love one Saul. of my favorite Bible characters. Oh, Saul is one of my faves. Yeah. I just, I, I like love a, Saul. Yeah, ancient. Yeah, I love it. Anyway, keep going. What Can, can you imagine what kind of call-out box they would put on the page, at the same page? You just have to tell facing me. Facing Saul's. I won't tell you. I'm going to show it to you. Oh, no. Just let's get your reaction. Oh no, how to grill the perfect steak? How to grill this the perfect steak. This is not good. To and the there's guy a fork, who kills himself by sword, if I'm not there's mistaken. There's a fork going in the steak. <laughs> That's so bad. Is this a joke? Okay, I gotta you know sh- what yeah, though? Kai, our, I gotta producer, tell our, you, our, our sound person's laughing. I gotta show Kai here. I gotta tell Can you, you something this? now. He can't believe it. This episode, you know, the Bible episode, this is, we're definitely in your wheelhouse, but I got a church history geek out for a second. Do it. Because this is actually a longstanding practice, this idea of one of the things that I'm interested in, and we could probably go on forever about this, 
is this episode's like 20 minutes too long we don't care the socio-political norms that are being endorsed by all these little inserts right? right right so but one of the one of the more popular Protestant Bibles, um, the one that was actually used by the Puritans back in the day, mm. um, it uh, is the Geneva Bible that was produced in oh, nice. uh, English Bible produced in Geneva, but it was by Puritan exiles from their homeland. So they produced it out yeah. of country, mm-hmm. and it's one of the Bibles, the English Bibles that has all like one of the first ones to put in like commentary mm-hmm. um, and kind of cross reference, kind of like it. a study Bible of sorts. So, yeah, and so one of the things that they would do is like every time there'd be a little passage about a king in Israel, you look on the notes. Not maybe not every time, but oftentimes, and there'd be a little note that says tyrant. Right? right, because they're the right. exiles from their homeland, right. and like the Church of England is persecuting. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're feeling persecuted. So that idea of like that the the idea that the Bible can't stand on its own and that it needs interpretation, even though the very same people who say we only live by the Bible, we only like create society based on the Bible, are the same people who are saying like, but here are all these interpretive helps. And that's right. just fascinating. That's a tension that I don't think will ever go away. I so then so Bible movies are often a source of this for for Christians. Like people will watch these movies and be like, I can't believe how they screwed this up. I went with a friend to watch the Noah movie. This came out oh. like about five years ago. The Noah movie with um, Russell Crowe. Yeah, it's not very biblically like informed, but I thought it was kind of imaginative it, it, and fun. Yeah, it kind of isn't and isn't. But yeah. you know, you kind of have to know what you're getting into. I, I thought it was artistically it was it was neat at some points. There the was, Nephilim stuff was kind of yeah. Interesting. Th- there were some things I could take or leave, you know. Yeah. But I enjoyed it, and it was only me I and my too. friend and this this um, woman and her husband in the back. It was only four people in the theater when we saw it and on the way we saw a beautiful rainbow by the way which is super weird but so we're there and 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 the movie ended and you know my friend and i just kind of looked at each other like let's get up pack up the candy yeah and this woman stands up and shouts like to her husband or i don't know maybe she was shouting to us i don't know who she was shouting. she she shouted as the credits were rolling she said i just don't know why they can't get it right oh no and she's she went into like a conniption (gasps) And on your point, I guess I was thinking to myself, what did this woman want? Did she just want them to scroll the words of the Bible on the screen? Right. Because as soon as you start having to act that out, movements even. It involves interpretation. You are interpreting. And by the way, which words would they be scrolling on the screen? The Hebrew of Genesis 6 through 9? <laughs> right. Or the English. translation, which is in fact all translations are an interpretation already at that level. <laughs> right. So we're, we're really confused about this issue. We've got a lot of baggage here. Mm-hmm. We need more episodes. More episodes. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. That's what we're still calling our listeners, weirdos? Still. I like it. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website. Did you know we have a website? Weirdreligion.com. These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Kai Blessing and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Roger Nam and to the Kern Foundation for sponsoring this season and to Trigger the studio dog when you podcast podcast with us bye